right. Hey, everybody. It's good to see you. My name is Brian, one of the pastors here uh, at the summit. And uh, like Andy said, we're going through the gospel according to Mark. Um, if you've been with us, you know what we talked about last week was really the, the kind of the heartbeat of Jesus' ministry. He comes and he basically says, uh, here's what I've come to do. I'm a king. I'm trying to establish a kingdom. We said last week, this isn't like really an alien concept because if you examine culture, you can see that in every political, philosophical, educational, physical realm, there's sort of competing visions for what sort of kingdom should exist here on earth. Jesus says, I'm a king. I've come to establish a kingdom. And he tells us what is required of us in order to enter into that kingdom, that we repent, that we turn from our sin, that we believe, that we turn to the gospel. Uh, Essentially, last week was Jesus telling us uh, everything that life in the kingdom entails. Now, uh, this morning, uh, Jesus is going to go from telling to showing. He's not just going to tell us what life in the kingdom looks like. He's actually going to physically, tangibly show us <clears throat> what it looks like. And uh, this, this is really good news, I, I, at least for me. I, I'm, a, I'm a pretty visual person, and so I'm sure many of you have these experiences as well where you you know, are maybe told something and it's difficult for you to wrap your mind around exactly what it is that somebody's talking about. And then you kind of lay eyes on that thing. And you're like, oh, okay, that clears things up. It makes, it makes a ton of sense. Um, just to maybe give you an example of this before we jump into the text. Uh, many of you might be able to tell that I have shaved my beard. And um, every, every spring this happens. Like I go outside and it's 75 degrees and sunny, which in Denver is like 120 degrees. And it's like, oh my gosh, like I have to get this sweater on my face off of my face. I just got to get it off. So I shave it, but I do what any good person with a beard does. I shave in stages. And the reason I shave in stages, uh, particularly this time, was because Maggie and I had been having kind of this long-standing debate as to what I would look like with a mustache. Um, For me, I sort of thought I would look like kind of a Tom Selleck-esque 1980s movie star uh, Megan offered an alternative theory that I would look ridiculous, and um, so I said, let's see. You know, let's not just talk about it. Let's see, and we found out that Megan was right. I look ridiculous. Um, I couldn't shave it off, though, because I just, like, that would, I've had, like, extensive facial hair on my face for, like, several years now, so I just have to leave it, let it grow back. Um, yeah. There's a big difference between telling and showing. And (laughs) this morning, Jesus isn't just going to tell us what life in the kingdom looks like. He is going to show us. Now, for the sake of clarity, here's kind of what Jesus is going to show us. I want to be really clear on the front end. What Jesus is going to show you is that life in his kingdom is really better than life anywhere else. It's better than any sort of other competing vision uh, for what your life should look like. And it really stems from the fact that Jesus is a better king. He's a better authority than anybody else in your life as well. Now, what you see here is we've seen that Jesus is not just fully man, he's fully God. Being fully God, he made all of you. And because of that, he cares about the entirety of who you are as a person. Uh, when I say that, kind of to use the, the theological term, uh, we would say that you are tripartite in your personhood. That is, you are not just a body, you are not just a mind, you are not a, a spirit, you are body, mind, and spirit. God made all of you, he cares about all of you. And what's beautiful about this is while Jesus cares about all of you in his kingdom, it, it's completely different than the way probably every other um, authority treats you. Typically, in every other competing vision of what kingdom, uh, what kingdom should be established here on earth, every other authority who tries to reign and rule over your life, their vision for your life tends to narrow in and only focus on sort of one aspect of your personhood at the expense of the others. Uh, So, for example, in 
For those of you who, who work, uh, the reality is, is that a lot of times your bosses care exclusively about your physical presence. They care exclusively about your body uh, and really don't care about anything else. And I'm not saying that in some sort of weird sort of sexual way, even though you do see that a lot of times in the workplace. But really, like what your boss cares about is you physically showing up and doing your job. Many of you, you work jobs that if you're struggling emotionally, if you're struggling spiritually, you don't go to your boss and you're like, hey, can we take like a, you know, some time to talk about this? And he's like, yeah, that would be great. That'd be fantastic. Like, why don't you take, what do you need, like a week? Uh, That's totally fine. Like, no, he's like, okay, I need to know if you can show up tomorrow and do your job. And if you can't, like, I'm sorry, but we have to get somebody else in here. All they care about is your body. Or for those of you who are in school right now or have been in school recently, you know that sort of the academic authorities in your life care exclusively about your mind. Like, nobody is giving you bonus points on an exam because you're, like, a really thoughtful person. It's like, oh, you don't understand math, but plus 10 points because, like, you're really nice and you're really caring and you seem like you're growing spiritually. Uh, and so because of that, like, you pass as opposed to fail. Like, no, like, all they care about is your ability to sort of acquire and then re-produce the information uh, that you have been given. Or even, like, some of you have had authorities in your life who care too much uh, or care exclusively about your spiritual life, which I know in a church is like a really weird thing to say, but a lot of you grew up in churches, or for those of you who did grow up in church, and I didn't have this experience, and I'm really glad I didn't, uh, because it makes me love the church all the more. I had to kind of work through this baggage. But you grew up in churches where kind of all that was talked about was the spiritual realm. And for you, probably growing up as a restless youth, you know, you had all sorts of intellectual questions about the faith, about difficult aspects of what we believe and why we believe it. Or you maybe even cared about the physical, tangible needs of the community in which your church existed. And you weren't met with receptivity to that. You were actually met with hostility, resistance, just believe, just have faith. It's not that big of a deal. You, you know, they'll go to heaven one day. It doesn't matter if they have any sort of needs that need to be met. And really, that's what you see. And competing visions of the kingdom and competing authorities over your life, people tend to care about one aspect of you, maybe two, but very, very rarely does a leader in your life care about the whole of who you are until you come and meet Jesus and see that he is meant to be the true king of your life. He has come to establish a kingdom. And really what we see in this scene, if this is kind of difficult for you to wrap your mind around, like what exactly does this entail? Well, the real beauty of this is that this scene doesn't just tell us about this, but it shows us that as well. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to jump into the passage we just read. We'll start in verse 21, and we'll see Jesus walk through uh, kind of how he cares about the totality of our personhood. Now, uh, what we'll first see is how Jesus cares about the intellect, how he cares about the mind. And look with me at verse 21 to see how this unfolds. Verse 21, it says, and they, now if you remember last week, Jesus has followed for the very first time. He's presented the gospel. Uh, Several men decide to repent and believe and they're following him. So now this kind of hodgepodge group of guys, they, they went into Capernaum. Now just to give you context of where this is, again, if we can bring our map from last week, there's the big picture view of where all of this is going down. And now we're going to zoom in a little bit. Yes, All of this, Capernaum is on the Sea of Galilee. Some of you may have heard of this before. It's on the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. It was a harbor town. It was pretty influential. It was kind of on a major highway between uh, major urban centers. And so there was a kind of a lot of diversity, commerce, all sorts of stuff that was going down here. They've gone into Capernaum. And here's what Jesus does when he goes into Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. Now, here's the really interesting thing about the synagogue. I knew nothing about the synagogue before I got ready to teach you guys this week. And I typically thought of the synagogue uh, almost like a temple where kind of 
uh, Jewish leaders in long flowing robes would be sacrificing uh, animals. That wasn't the way that it worked historically. A synagogue existed in any sort of Middle Eastern community uh, where there were 10 or more Jewish males. And it was more like an assembly hall more than it was a temple. And really, as I studied more about it, what it reminded me of more than anything else in our culture is like a rotary club or like a lion's den where kind of like old crotchety guys get together and talk about like politics and world happenings and traditions. And like back in my day, it was like this. Um, That is sort of what the synagogue in this day had devolved into. People were originally meant to walk into the synagogue, find God, find hope, have their life restored. And they would walk in and they would find these scribes teaching who were very learned and very established and very influential. But they really offered nothing more than sort of common sense, tradition, opinion, and it was, in a lot of ways, very pointless. Sorry if you belong to a Rotary Club, but I don't think any of you do. Um, now, it's interesting. So Jesus walks in, and Mark intentionally juxtaposes sort of what people have been experiencing to what it's like for Jesus to teach for the very first time. And look at how the people respond in verse 22. It says, They were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. It's really interesting, like, Mark, if you look at this, look again at verse 22, like he's not just telling us like that they're astonished when he teaches, but like why they're astonished. It says it's because they can instantly tell like this guy has authority. I love that word authority. It's one of my favorite Greek words. It's the Greek word exousia. Like it's really fun just to say exousia. And it says when he has authority, it's interesting. Mark uses this word exousia nine times throughout the entirety of this book, and he uses it exclusively to describe Jesus, particularly Jesus teaching or doing things sort of in line with the authority of God. He's saying, like, this is the man who possesses true authority, and you're given a really vivid illustration of this because over and over and over again, people are coming to the synagogue, and they're looking at the most learned, the most influential, the people who claimed in their day to be spiritually enlightened. They're listening to them teach day after day after day after day, and then Jesus gets, like, 30 seconds in to teach him for the very first time, and they're like, whoa, these guys know nothing. This guy has authority. He's the one that we should believe and follow, and he's the one who should shape our intellectual understanding of what is true and what is not true in relation to God and his function uh, in the world. Now, what I would present to you is that you and I, we are meant to have a very similar response. Like, we are meant to look at this and say, wait a second, like, this is the man who possesses true authority to reign and rule over the intellect, to reign and rule over uh, what I believe is true, what I believe I should give my life to, the way I should function in the areas of life that matter the most. Now, we talked about this a few weeks ago when we did our equip form, but what's important for you to understand is that all of us have an authority in our lives. Uh, If any of you are maybe, like, I don't know, read philosophy, or a lot of times you just even see people kind of drop this term fairly uh, frequently now in culture. A lot of times people talk about how everybody has a worldview. The way it's described is almost like you possess a set of lenses through which you would look at the world, and you look at really maybe controversial issues, and you say, no, like, this is what's true. Or you look at maybe uh, the way that you should live in relation to, like, the way you handle your money, or the way you handle your time, or your priorities, or your job, or your sex life, and you say, okay, this is what I should do. What's important for you to understand, I think worldview, that term doesn't really go far enough, because it's like, oh, yeah, everybody has an opinion, everybody has a perspective. Like, no, everybody has an authority. Everybody has something or someone who sort of sits on the throne of their lives and says, this is what you should do, and this is what you shouldn't do in the areas of your life that matter the most. 
Now, I want to press into this even a little bit more and help you maybe think through this. And so as you kind of wrestle through this scene, what I would challenge you, maybe in order for you to have the same response that these, these people have, have, have in this scene, is ask yourself two really crucial questions. And the first is this. It's like, what is my authority? So everybody in their lives has some sort of authority. What is it for you? So the areas of life that matter the most, what is the final arbiter of truth? What is the final arbiter that says this is what you should do? And so think about this. Like for some of us, it's our experience. Um, A lot of us, we live lives in reaction to what we experienced growing up. And because we had these experiences, whether they were positive or negative, typically we live in reaction to negative experiences. We say, okay, I experienced this. I never want this to happen again. And so I know a lot of people who maybe in their financial lives, the reason they're super tight with their money is because they grew up uh, maybe in a home where money was super tight as well, or even money wasn't that tight, but parents like really sort of tricked you into believing the money was really, really tight. And then, you know, now you, you feel like really, really guilty spending a dollar on anything, right? Like you, um, I don't know, you're hungry and you were just like, nope, I'm not going to buy a Big Mac at McDonald's because we don't have the money right now. I don't care if my wife is complaining. I don't care if the kids are screaming in the backseat. We have food at home, I think, and we'll be there in an hour and it'll be fine. Um, And it's never fine. I'll tell you that as somebody who is a tightwad himself. Um, Not that I'm speaking from personal experience whatsoever. But it's really easy to live in reaction to your experience. Or it's really, really easy um, maybe to live in reaction to, like, emotion or feeling. I feel like you hear people in culture say this a lot. You know, a lot of times people say, like, you have to do what feels right for you, or you have to follow your heart. I feel like, you know, total confession time. I watched the entirety of The Bachelor with my wife. I'm trying to be a good husband, support her, encourage her. And so we watched it, and it's like, you know, and this is where I have to, like, turn off my philosophical brain. But it's like, I I mean, I just, like, yell this every single time people say this. But it's like every single major decision on that show is done out of, like, you have to do what's right for you. I have to follow my heart. And a lot of us, we make decisions that way in terms of who we date or our sex lives. Like, there's kind of no other final arbiter of truth other than what feels right. Or it might even be something like money. Like, it might just be, like, the reason you work the job you work, the reason you're going to live where you live, the reason you buy the home you buy, boils down to you making as much money as possible. It's the most important thing in your life, and all sorts of decisions will be, function, will be filtered through that lens and that grid in terms of why you do what you do and why you send your kids to the school that they get sent to and everything. It's like funny, money is the final and most important thing. So that's the first question. Okay, what is... The final arbiter of truth. What is the authority in our lives? And the second question you naturally have to ask yourself then is not just what is that authority, but does that authority possess or deserve that sort of place in my life? Like, have I following um, my emotions or have I been following my uh, experiences or have I been following money? And has that led to things going well for me or not well for me? And so, if you're the type of person who maybe always follows your emotions and says, like, I ultimately ought to do what's best for me, I ultimately got to do what feels right to me, I mean, I would just ask you the question then, like, has that ever not worked out for you? Like, have you ever made a really significant decision that went horrible for you? Have you ever dated somebody that you were sure, like, this is going to go well, and it ended awful? Has ever happened to you? I would say, like, every single bad thing that's ever happened to us began that way. Like, the reality is, is, like, none of us 
We're none of, you know, none of us are like, you know what? Like, you know what feels right? What feels right is like, I'm going to make this decision, and it is going to go terrible for me, and I am going to cry my eyes out. I cannot, I like, feel so right. Like, no. Like, every single major decision that has gone poorly began with, like, this feels really good for me, and a lot of us, our feelings have lied to us, and so I would ask you, should emotions be the final arbiter of truth if they lie to you so frequently and so often? For those of you who maybe follow money, the reason you work the job you work, the reason you'll live where you live, the reason you'll do the things you do, I mean, what I would just ask you is, like, do you know anybody who's maybe realized their dream of having more money than they know what to do with and yet are still miserable once they've reached that end destination? Like, I grew up going to private school, and everybody I knew was like that. All my friends' parents, like, they had more money than they knew what to do with. They had realized the dream that many of you are chasing after. And they were filled with nothing other than a ton of stuff, and a ton of regret. And so I would ask you, like, is money then, like, making as much as possible meant to be the final authority that determines the areas of your life that matter the most? For those of you who say, you know, well, I'm much more intellectual than that, and I follow kind of the leading opinion of the day, and I listen to these scholars, and I read these books, and I listen to these podcasts, and I read these blogs, I would say that's fine. I mean, the question I would ask you, though, is, has there ever been a time in history where the leading, intellectual that, in leading intellectuals of the day have not only been wrong, but have actually been pushing behind the worst atrocities of their day? And I would say if you're an intellectual, you've hopefully studied history, and you know in the 20th century, that's exactly the case. I mean, just to give you an example, I know it's an extreme one, but like Adolf Hitler didn't kill millions of people because he was surrounded by a bunch of dum-dums. It wasn't like, oh yeah, like if they could just get one more advanced degree, then like none of this would happen. They were the leading intellectuals of the day. Now, let, let me be really careful here because here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that like emotion is intrinsically bad. What I'm not saying is experience and learning from experience is intrinsically bad. I'm not saying that education is tremendously bad. I'm not saying any of those things. I'm just saying that none of those things, if you examine them and think about them carefully, are meant to possess a place of preeminence in your life as the final authority as to what it is that you will do, as to what it is you will do with your body, as to what it is you will do with your time, as to what it is you will do with your children as you're raising them. They're not bad. They're not evil. They're just not meant to be in first place. They're not meant to be in a place of preeminence. They are meant to be submitted to the creator, the true king, the true authority, who, as you see in this scene, everybody hears teach for the very first time, and they say, that's the man who's meant to be the true authority over our lives. And I would say for you then, like what you're meant to do then, if you have kind of somebody or something other than Jesus as the final arbiter of truth, it's not meant to like totally overreact and reject those things, but rather submit them and put them in their proper place underneath the reign and the lordship of Jesus Christ, who is the true king. He's God. He is all-knowing. He's omniscient. And consequently, he can take the place of your preeminent intellectual authority in the areas of life that matter the most. Now, um, what we see then is Jesus doesn't just stop there. He doesn't just teach, but he starts to deal with the spiritual and the physical as well. Now, we're going to hit both of these a little bit quicker because a lot of the the remainder of the gospel according to Mark really elaborates on this. So I'm just going to be kind of super direct and to the point as we go through this. But look at what happens next. So Jesus is teaching, and then all of a sudden, it goes from an intellectual scene to a very spiritual one instead. Verse 23 says, And immediately there was in their synagogue 
a man with an unclean spirit. Now, when it says unclean spirit there, um, if you were Jewish, I, I don't know if there's anybody who comes to the summit who has a Jewish background, but if you were Jewish, that would make a lot of sense. Uh, another way that this could be translated is not just, um, is not just unclean, but actually evil. Like, we said this before, we studied this a few weeks ago, not everything in the spiritual realm is good, we'll talk about this here in a second, but there is that which is good, and there's that which is evil. There's that which is clean, and there's that which is unclean. So, there's a man with the unclean spirit, and he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Now, it's really interesting that the, the, the spirit, he decides to use Jesus' full name here, Jesus of Nazareth. The reason this is so interesting is because this is just kind of a side historical note. But what scholars believe is that when kind of this sort of scene would unfold, when there would sort of be a spiritual battle to show who is supreme, uh, a lot of times people's full names would be used. And it was believed that kind of using the full name would be establishing the authority over the, the, the one that you're opposing, and you would sort of bind them. So it's like the demon is walking in and is like, who do you think you are, Jesus of Nazareth? And he's expecting it to be game over. And he's like, oh, wait, this is not going the way I expected it to go, which is why what you see in the very next scene, he says, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, here's what we see in the scene. Again, we're going to be kind of super to the point, cut right to the chase, because Mark will elaborate much more on this in the coming weeks and months as well. Let me just kind of make two simple observations from what we see as Jesus steps into the spiritual realm. The first is this, is what we learn is not all that is spiritual is good. We learn that not all that is spiritual is good. And I think this really um, juxtaposes against what we see in culture a lot of times, where sort of the highest compliment, I mean, I think especially in Denver, um, I think we like the idea of being a person of belief. We even have a really high view of somebody who would maybe label themselves as being uh, not religious, but spiritual. It, it kind of reminds me of when uh, Megan and I were in college. She uh, lived with some girls who, uh, over their fridge, I still remember this, they had like a wood cutout and it said, believe. And I always remember being like, what does that actually mean? Like, believe in what? And it was kind of like, just believe. Like, just believe, right? And, and I think a lot of times that's the way we think of spiritual belief. It's like, just believe. Just believe in something. And what you're seeing in this scene is like, no. It, it's not so much the quantity of your faith that matters. It's the object of your faith that really matters. It's not so much like that you have really strong belief. It's like, who or what is it that you are believing in? Because what you're seeing in this scene is not everything that's spiritual is good. There's clean and there's unclean. There's good and there is uh, evil. And and I just feel like, again, I'm just going to be right to the point here. I just feel like a lot of times in Denver, I feel like as it pertains to spirituality, and I and I'm probably speaking about a number of you in this room, and I'm trying to be kind here, but just my observation is kind of the most important thing is like just to have some belief and sort of church and the gospel in Jesus is sort of one item on the spiritual buffet that you take a little bit of in order to help make you live a more fulfilled, happy lifestyle, and there's all sorts of other options as well, and you kind of push together this conglomeration, and the most important thing for you to do is to have this tremendously open mind, and I would just say to you, if that's the way you think, like, I'm really glad you're here, and I'm glad, you know, we're one of the options at least, and I'm not just saying we're 
kind of what you're meant to shut down on, but Jesus is. Like G.K. Chesterton, he said, the point of an open mind is the same of the point of an open mouth. It's meant to shut down on something solid. And the reality is, is like in the areas of your life that you really value the most, in the areas of your life that matter the most, the reality is, is you're not like perpetually open-minded. Like if you get offered your dream job, you're not like, you know, I'm going to keep my options open and, you know, I'll just keep working part-time here and part-time there. And I love not having health care because I can't get full-time benefits anywhere. Like, that's absolutely fantastic. You're like, no, when can I start? You want me there now? Do you have a uniform? Like, I'll be there right now. Because in the areas of life that matter the most, once you've found what you're searching for, you attach yourself to it as quickly as possible. And the same thing as what you're seeing here is that Jesus is saying not everything that's spiritual is good. And consequently, you're not just meant to believe. You're meant to believe in the right thing. And not really the right thing, but the right person. And give your life fully and entirely to following him. Now, not only that, here's what really, really challenges me about this scene. Is we learn, it's not just really a learning, but like Jesus does something to us. We learn that Jesus has come not just to teach us, but to heal us. Jesus has come not just to teach us, but to heal us. And let me be just really transparent with you. For me, I read a scene like this one. I believe it happened. Like, I believe the Bible's true. Um, but I don't believe when I first read this, like this was particularly relevant for me because I've never been possessed by demons. I will say, I'm not trying to dismiss that. I don't know if I should, yeah. Um, <laughs> I believe stuff like this can still happen, even from personal experience. I know that's kind of like a weird thing just to throw out there and then be like, moving on. Um, but I do, I don't know. I'm just trying to like, yeah, like, I think if you're just kind of like, oh, yeah, like, they were just ignorant back then. I would just say, at least from my own personal experience, like, like you're not being very wise. Um, back on track. What am I saying? Um, oh, yeah. But as, as I was reading this, I mean, for me, even though, like, I believe things like this can happen, and I've even had, like, kind of observations of things like this happening, um, I would just say... That for me, like, I'm just kind of like, yeah, next story. This doesn't relate to me very much. And I was trying to, like, really kind of meditate on this and think on this. And I really feel like what, what came to my mind was one of the most beautiful scenes of Scripture um, where Paul, later in the New Testament, writes about what God has done in the work of every man and woman who believes and follows him in the gospel. And it's really interesting. It comes from Ephesians 2, and here's what Paul says. He says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. So he's describing, like, what does your life look like apart from Jesus? You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. And look what he says next. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, which is, this is a historical, classical, orthodox way of describing Satan. Like, what he's saying is, we're not just dead in our sins, we are following the wrong spiritual things. We are part of the opposition. We are part of the rebellion. And we have to be healed of that. Like, this man in this scene who needs healing, like, that's the same healing that you and I need as, as well. Like, it may not be as dramatic, but the spiritual condition is the same. And what he goes on to say is God in his grace is willing to do just that. He says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But look at verse 4, one of the most beautiful verses in the entirety of the Bible. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. 
the output might not be as radical and dramatic, but the inward spiritual condition is the same of what it is that we need to be healed of. And Jesus, in his grace and his mercy, as he deals with our spiritual lives, like he doesn't just teach us how to be a more spiritual person. He heals our souls. He heals like my soul even of something that I didn't think was wrong with me. Like, what a king. Like, what an authority. What a savior that he will go far more beyond what it is I even ask for. Like, he is more after my joy than even I am. But it's amazing. Okay, so he doesn't just... He doesn't just kind of go after the mind. He doesn't just go after the spirit. And we'll see, kind of elaborate more on that in coming weeks as well. But he heals the physical as well. And look at what happens. Look in verse 25. I feel like this would be really easy to kind of move beyond. Um, But he says in verse 25, But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. Now again, I feel like it's easy to just kind of be like, oh yeah, let's just move beyond this. Jesus healed him. He's totally back in his right mind now. Let's just move beyond this. But everybody I read who's making observations about this is like, no, no, no. Like, look at the fact that Jesus isn't just like, I'll pray for you, brother. Um, I hope one day in heaven it gets better for you. But no, he like actually takes a step towards saying the physical world matters and I'm going to actually heal you and restore you back into who you were meant to be. In fact, if you've been reading the commentary that we provided uh, in the lobby, the big thick one, uh, the author of that, James Edwards, he says about this scene, the initial report about Jesus from the synagogue in Capernaum is not simply a victory of the Holy One of God over bent and evil forces, as though two chess players were manipulating pawns on the board for their own advantage. Not only are unclean spirits expelled, but broken people are restored to health and wholeness and to the possibility of restoration with their creator in whose image they are made. The exousia of Jesus, the authority of Jesus, is astonishing, not as a display of Jesus' grandeur, but as a power of redemption for captives. It's easy to overlook this scene, but you know what's happening? It's like, we've said this, like God has stood off at a distance for a period of time and let the world kind of run its course as its own kingdoms and authorities have tried to like make the world what they said it would be. And it's a story of failure after failure after failure. It's terrible. And that Jesus, being fully God and fully man, has stepped out of heaven into history. And it's almost like God has walked back in the room. It's almost like Dad has walked back in the room and he's finally putting things back together in the way they were created and intended to be. Like The image that came to my mind as we were talking about that this week was like, I don't know if um, any of you, like, you know, if you had siblings, I feel like part of sib- being a sibling is that you guys like try to wrestle and kill each other to the verge of death, um, at least if you're brothers. I, I feel like I have a daughter now, and she's like way sweeter than I ever was, so maybe that won't be her personality. But like I remember me and my brother Eric, uh, we would wrestle all the time. And I remember like one time we were wrestling at like the foot of the stairs, and um, I think, I can't remember if he threw me in there. I threw, like, we threw one another into the wall, and it left this, like, giant hole in the drywall. And if you've ever done that before, you have two thoughts. It's like, my dad is going to kill me, 
and it's going to be like this forever. Like, I'm going to walk by this, and when I'm like 25 years old, my dad's going to be like, that's the hole that you put in the wall, and it's still there. And because, I mean, you know, when you're like seven years old, especially when you're not handy like me, you're not like, oh, yeah, like we just patch it up with some drop. You know, it's like, it's going to be like that for the rest of our lives. And I still remember, like, the release I, I felt. My dad was not happy. Uh, but when he patched it back up, he took his little scraper thing and patch it back up, and you can see how much I sort of technically know about what he did. All I know is it was fixed. And, like, Dad walked back in the room, and, like, everything was right again. And it's interesting, like, we have a yearning for that sort of same experience to happen in every sphere and area of our lives. Like, there is this haunting suspicion, no matter what we believe about the world, no matter your authority, no matter your worldview, there is a haunting suspicion that things are not as they should be. You get sick, you have friends who get sick, you have people that are abused, you have people that are exploited, and over and over and over again, the cry of the world is, why are, not thi- why are things not as the way we believe them to be? Or why are things not the way that they are meant to be? And it's like Jesus, just in a moment, is stepping back, and it's like Dad is stepping back into the room, and he's putting things back together, and everybody's saying, oh, that's the way it's supposed to be. Like, a man's not to be, meant to be tormented by demons. A man's not to meant to be physically handicapped. A man is not meant and was not created to be on the fringe and the outskirts of society because everybody's terrified of him and he's viewed as being unclean. And Jesus is just giving a glimpse, a foretaste into the larger work that he is going to do in the world through the gospel, that he is not meant merely going to heal our minds, he is not merely going to hear, heal our souls, but he is going to heal our bodies. And the physical world matters to him. Like it really, really does matter. It's why it matters to us. It's like, you know, a lot of times people in our culture, they're like super pumped about social justice, but they're about it for all the wrong reasons. Like the reason we're passionate about the tangible physical needs of our city and our community is because the tangible physical needs of the world matter to a God who has stepped back into the world and through his kingdom is restoring things back to the way they were originally created to be all the way back in the garden. That is our motivation. And here's Jesus giving a glimmer of hope for those of you who are chronically sick, for those of you who have people close to you whose lives are approaching the end, for those of you who actually care about your neighbors and the people around you who are marginalized and exploited, to say that's not the way it's always going to be. And sometimes in this world, Jesus does exactly what he did, where he restores this man back to health, but there's an ultimate hope in the gospel seen tangibly in the resurrection that one day, Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, will restore things back to the way they were originally intended to be. And as this scene comes to a close, then, you see what happens. Look at what happens at the very end. And they, verse 27, they were all amazed. So they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. We are meant to be astonished in the wake of a scene like this, not just because it happened 2,000 years ago, but because Jesus Christ, he didn't just die, he's alive. And because he's alive, he's still in the business of changing lives today. And reigning as king, establishing his kingdom over every area of life that matters, the mental, the physical, the spiritual. Now, as we then pray and respond, here's what I want to do. I want to challenge you maybe to ask, 
just a few questions for you to examine yourself and to think about this as we respond in worship and prayer and communion. The first is this, is I would just maybe challenge some of you to examine in your life where you might be out of balance. I think a lot of times what happens is even within the church, if you're a follower of Jesus, you exalt kind of one of these components of personhood over all the other. You even demonize the people who exalt the other ones. And so maybe like all you care about is the mind and you might be a theological nerd, but you can't practically love your wife very well. Like that is not glorifying to God. Like maybe you care very much about the social needs of the city, which is fantastic, but you do it at the expense of holding to true orthodox belief. That does not exalt God. Like all of us, we, are ten- we typically are out of balance somewhere and to have some sort of self-awareness to say, no, it all matters to God. And as a consequence, it's all going to matter to me. And I might not have a natural predisposition to be as good at this as Jesus is. I'll go ahead and like, spoiler alert, you're not. But rather than demonizing people who maybe have different propensities and bents than you, uh, rather than sort of being uh, self-righteous in the midst of that, instead being self-aware and looking in at yourself and saying, okay, like, I am going to try to grow in the areas of life, maybe the physical, maybe the spiritual, maybe the intellectual, that doesn't come as naturally to me, and I tend to just say, oh, that doesn't matter very much because I'm not naturally good at this. The second thing I would say, the second question, is not just where am I out of balance, but like maybe where, where do I need to give thanks in particular, or maybe where do I need to start really following the king? And this might be if you're a follower of Jesus, this might be if you're not a follower of Jesus and you've never thought about maybe your intellect being submitted to the reign and rule of Jesus and letting him be the authority over the guy at, you know, like down to the Tivoli campus who, you know, is teaching an intro class to religion and is telling you why none of these things that you've believed your entire life are true. It might mean with your body, you typically thought like, oh, it doesn't matter. Like, I can sleep with who I sleep with and there's no consequences whatsoever and all that God cares about is I believe and I'm here on uh, Sunday. I say, no, like, God cares about all of you. He cares about all your life. He doesn't care about what you do on a Sunday morning any more than he cares about what you do on Friday night. And it might mean then that you say like, okay, like my body, the scriptures describe my body as a temple, a dwelling place for the spirit of God himself. And as a consequence, I'm going to start submitting not just my intellect, but my body to believing and following him. Wherever it might be, we're out of balance. We don't need to just sort of make a cognitive assertion towards that, but we need to repent and believe. And so as we respond then through prayer, through communion, we do so celebrating and giving thanks to the king who cares about all of us. And so let's think about where we're out of balance and let's think about where we need to repent and get in line, in line with the gospel. All right, let's pray. God, we thank you so much for who you are. I know we say that every week. I feel like um, almost like that is the rote way of finishing what we talk about. But we first and foremost give thanks that you are who you say you are, that you come in as a true authority And your reign and rule over our lives is far better than anything we would ever produce for ourselves. I mean, this is astounding because every other authority in life we can look at and criticize and critique and say, if I was in charge, I would do things much better. If I was in charge, my life would be much better. Or if I was in charge, everybody else's life would be much better. 
But we finally come to you, the man who possesses true authority, because you are not just merely man, but you are also God. And we say, we submit to you. We repent, we believe, we'll follow, we'll obey, because you are more after our joy than we are. And so God, I pray that we would respond accordingly to that as we sing, as we take communion, as we even think deeply about what it means to care about the whole of our lives in the same way that you do. God, we thank you that life in the kingdom is so good and so beautiful. And we ask these things in the name of the King Jesus. Amen.